0: Welcome to the Science of Beers podcast with me, Mick McGee. I love having proper conversations with intelligent people, especially over a beer, and that's exactly what this podcast is. We'll cover a new topic each week, so join us with a beer and let's cheers to science. My guest this week... Vincent Keating hails from Nova Scotia in Canada. He's now working at the Centre for War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. Vincent is a an excellent communicator of science. I've been on a few of his uh, presentations, his talks, but what follows is a, is a conversation. Uh, so more of the sharing of ideas and, and some of the research questions that uh, Vincent is, is thinking about. The COVID-19 restrictions have been largely lifted here in Denmark and that means that we get to go to the pub and drink pints together. So we find a, a seat outside a pub and I brought my handheld recorder. So you're gonna be hearing a little bit of the, the atmosphere around the street. You're gonna be hearing other patrons of the pub and some passers-by as well. I hope this this adds texture to the audio recording but please let me know. Uh, if you like this podcast, please, please share it, tell a friend about it, write a review. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, and Acast. To follow Vincent Keating, his Twitter tag is VC Keating. This podcast is best listened to with a beer in your hand. So please join us. Enjoy. Half a pint in, Vincent. Let's 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 start start the podcast. So, you are a, a, an associate professor at the Center of War Studies at the University of Southern Denmark. So, perhaps you could comment on something that I saw on the internet earlier this afternoon. Coronavirus. For anybody listening, in the year two thousand and thirty-one, uh, coronavirus was a pandemic. Uh, that brought the whole world to its knees for a couple of months. But the good news is that now the bars are open again. So science and beers can unite once again for a cold. So we can meet in this beautiful, sunny, warm,
1: unza weather.
0: Beautiful weather here yeah. in, in Denmark. Like it always is. Indeed. Beautiful day to talk science and talk beer with a clever person such as yourself, Litson. So, what this thing you saw on the internet early Coronavirus. Invented by Bill Gates. Planted in China. And used... To distract us, so that Elon Musk can erect five G networks all over the world and control our brains. True or false? Probably false.
1: I would say. (laughs) I I would say that. uh, I mean, what's actually interesting about all of this is is the degree to which these conspiracy theories tend to be, uh, you know, taken up. Uh, You know, it's an interesting phenomenon, and I know there's a lot of good work done about it. because you have, you know, I mean, one explanation is that you have a very complicated phenomenon, right? I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty in the science of what's going on. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of how people are reacting, in terms of what society should do. Uh, there's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the, you know, the exact origin. Of course, we're kind of pinning that down, right? But, you know, at the very beginning, it was it was uncertain. And I think these conspiracy theories, in, in one way, give people a sense of order, at least, right? Right. They give a sense of you know a very clear narrative as to what this is all about, and an right? interesting story. It's, listen, and an interesting story, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a it's a way better story than this is a random mutation um, that just happened to be successful. Yeah. That's a boring story. It ends right there, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, the consequences of it, of course, are, you know, in many ways profound, right? But the story, the creation story, is uh, is 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 a little a little bit basic and not not thrilling, I guess, is what you'd say.
0: It's not thrilling, as you uh, say. We're still not closer to it, but uh, it's just interesting that anybody anybody that a video to YouTube it seems to have more authority in the eyes of many. Than scientists, experts <laughs> who work in this subject. Yeah. And and that that, that, that is such a such a, a fascinating phenomenon. Yeah. Uh, and it makes it very difficult to. To communicate the science, whenever the conspiracy theorists say, "Well, how can you trust the science?" Yeah, they're in it as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. They get funding. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I know they, they, they get funding to
1: do. I mean, that's that's the thing that I never really sort of understood. I mean, because to a certain extent, I mean, yeah, they get funding to do science, right? But I mean, they 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 could always do other science as well, right? I mean, it's not it's not um. like there's only one stream of scientists that any some one stream of science that a scientist could ever do right um, but i think it's, i think it's one of those things where it's it's again it just it gives a clear narrative it's an, it's a more exciting story and uh, and we're lucky that well, we're lucky that this is a minority. I mean, it's yeah. an interesting minority as
0: to why it is that they that they believe what they do. Um, but, uh, again, a minority overall. So, yeah. Vincent, I'm aware you're not a geneticist. Perhaps we'll get get somebody on that's an expert in viruses that's, to, to comment more on the subject. That's an important uh, disclaimer here. But, but this yeah. is still relevant because what we're dealing with there is, is fake news. Yes. And you have been looking into fake news since before it was... Christian fake news, yes, and it's been a tool used, uh, well, by many countries. But your your focus is on Russia. Yep, that's right.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, basically, uh, yeah, I mean, what what, what a lot of uh, my research does is, is basically look at, you know, fake news, propaganda, and a lot of it is is about how do we think about this phenomenon? How do we think about the phenomenon of, of fake news and propaganda? And are we thinking about it correctly? Okay. Um, and I think what's important about this is just sort of understanding that, you know, when we think about fake news, right, we often think about, Sputnik. We think about uh, we think about uh, Russia today, right? We think about you know Russia as a power who wants to get a message out to kind of disrupt or confuse the liberal uh, the liberal West, right? Mm-hmm. So. And, and, and it's it's for certain that they do this okay I mean this I should say when I say this is our common understanding it is to a certain extent ingrained in, in uh, you know in what it is that they do want to do um, it's, it's known it, like, it's it's reasonably known yeah. right I mean you know I mean you know I'm being in social science I'll never say 100% but I'll say it's it's reasonably clear uh-huh. uh, that, uh, that, that that this is the case yeah no I mean and, and it's been happening for you know at, at least a decade Um that you know that the russians have been attempting to
0: influence uh, you know liberal democracy right so so the the two things that would stand out in my my mind would be the brexit election Yep, the Brexit referendum yep. and uh, the last election in the USA. Yes, yes, absolutely. Is, there's evidence to, to yep. back up. De-
1: definitely for the the last election in the United States. I mean, there was there were there were investigations into this that came out that there were, that the Russians attempted to you know interfere with the election. Right. I think I think what's important because of course you know an immediate response to this is well all countries try to interfere with each other uh, you know, domestic affairs, and that's and that's definitely true. Right? I think I think that's first of all we need to say right. I mean, the United States, for instance, has a certain worldview. They would prefer things to go in a certain way, um, and they definitely interfere in the same way that Russia does. Um, my argument for why this is important, though, is because if you're a liberal, okay, and you and you sort of you know if you if you support the idea of liberal democracy being the way that we should. Govern ourselves, right? Then the threat is that the Russian message is trying to disrupt us, right? And that, for me, is sort of the I guess the ethical issue behind why it is that I'm studying this, right? So in a way, it's it's not an equivalence of they're doing it, we do it. It doesn't matter because everybody does it. It's because if you value liberal democracy, you know that the messages coming from the current Russian regime are
0: ones that are trying to destabilize it. Right. So I think so. So destabilise yeah. the, the, the very idea that that people can live in a in a democracy
1: well destabilize the democracy itself
0: why right? why would anybody bother why would all you say most countries are involved why
1: well I mean okay I, I can't I can't look into the minds of the Russian yeah. regime right but I mean if I, if I were if I were to guess about it I mean it's because they face certain amounts of political pressure um, from the West that they would prefer not to have right uh, and uh, you know if they can destabilize uh, the, you know the West make it less functional then of course it's it's good for them. Uh, you know, they—they, they, you know, right now the sort of regime isn't particularly liberal. Uh, and, uh, you know, so they've, again, faced pressure from liberal regimes that they would prefer not to face. And one of the tools that they can do is to kind of mess internally with liberal democracies in order to sort of reduce the amount of pressure and perhaps even gain allies. You know, so actually yes. shift the dynamics, uh, you know, instead of being sort of against Russia, maybe sort of like support... Local ideologically similar groups, uh, in order to have support for the regime
0: instead of opposition. So, so whenever you say uh, they're against liberalism, in mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and Russia are, are conservative. Yep. So I'm thinking in the U.S. you have your liberals and your conservatives. Mm-hmm. Yep. So they would be trying to uh, trying to, to to tune into the conservative mindset of those yep. in the U.S.A. Yep.
1: To say that hey. So your
0: country should be like ours.
1: Yeah. And, and and there's sort of two things here. The first thing is that and it's really important to note, Russia is a diverse country. Right? I mean not everybody in Russia is a conservative, just like not everybody in Denmark is a socialist, right? So one of the things about this is that, you know, what we're talking about is the current Russian regime, right? So not to confuse it with like all Russians. But what you can say about it is that this is exactly, you know, the interesting thing is most of how we think about propaganda and disinformation is about sowing confusion. It's about fake news, it's about law. Long- Right. Um, And what I'm interested in is, is, you know, accepting that that happens. Right. But I think what we might be overlooking in all of this is that there's also ideological resonance. Right. That the message isn't just about, you know, confusing the others. Right. It's also about creating a message that actually creates attraction to what it is that the Russian regime is doing domestically. And a lot of this is sort of bound up in in an idea called soft power. Mm -hmm, So soft power is an idea that was coined by a guy named Joseph Nye, an American political scientist back in the 90s. And basically he had this idea, right? Because back in the 90s, early 90s particularly, people were trying to figure out what is the new global order going to be? Right? that's kind of the big question communism is dead, it seems like liberal democracy won, or capitalism depending on how you want to put it so what is this new world order going to look like? We've just had 40 years of superpower rivalry. You know, what comes next? So Joseph Nye comes up with, a, with an idea. He says, okay, in this new world order, one of the things that's going to be important is not just hard power, which he means sort of economic coercion or military coercion, military might, but also soft power. Okay? And he defines soft power as this power of attraction. Right? And a power of attraction that a state has because it has a particular ideology or because it has a particular culture, and that that culture and ideology sort of are, is reflected in the foreign policy of the country, right? And that last bit is a little bit important, right? Because the thing is is that if you have an ideology that says, well, you know, we believe in freedom, we believe in, in liberty, and then your foreign policy is that you're going to enslave everybody, right? It's not really going to be a good soft power attractor, okay? So there has to be, you know, you have to basically practice what you preach, okay? So Joseph Knight takes this idea in the early 1990s and basically markets it as, you know, one of the next big things, right? It's not just hard power... States, if they want to do what they want to do, if they want to accomplish their political goals in the world, also need soft power. And they need to start thinking about how it is that they're going to get that soft
0: power. Right? Okay. So, yeah. So, so maybe this isn't directly related, but I'm from Ireland. Yes. And I think Ireland, for a very small country, very much has the same kind of acceptance all over the world you know there's an Irish bar everywhere Mm -hmm. you see you're from Ireland you're like oh yay from Ireland it it seems to be a very welcome somebody back in the day must have done a very good marketing campaign for the small island in the Atlantic of Ireland somebody is that is that that am I mistaken what you're saying there is that just a pure accident or, or does Ireland have itself quite a lot of soft power?
1: Well, in this way, I mean, you you could make this argument that Ireland has actually quite a lot of soft power, right? I mean, as a as a state, it's it's. You know, I mean, it's a it's a medium-sized, you know, lower medium-sized European state. It doesn't right? have a lot of military. It doesn't have a lot of military, right? The economy is fine, but not, like, super amazing, right? Sure, the, the Irish Prime Minister might disagree with me on that, but, you know, I mean, it's not, <laughs> but it's not, like, notable, right? You know, it's doing, but it's doing fine, right? Um... But you know what? What it does have is it has a sort of cultural attraction, right? And it's managed through its diaspora culture, right? To to basically to make that work, uh, you know. So you have Irish bars everywhere, right? They're mm-hmm. the they're the McDonald's of the bars, right? They're they right. all over the world. They basically get are the same, right? <laughs> you know, you know, and you know what you're getting when you walk into an Irish bar. Indeed. right? Indeed. You know, I mean that's that's how it is, right? And, uh, and 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 you know, and because of that, I mean you. Could you could probably make an argument and you know I, I don't I've never studied Ireland but you could probably make an ar- argument that this is why you know Bill Clinton comes and talks to the Irish Prime Minister right? You know, yeah. in a way that maybe he doesn't for the Slovak Prime Minister. You know, and and that's and well, that well, and that makes yeah, a difference, right? I there's guess, a certain attraction.
0: Yeah, that, that's probably also I think the third people, third of the people in the US, about 70 million, identify, yeah, as Irish because they have some kind of Irish in their in their heritage there. Yeah, So and that's also a vote thing for the presence of the. Yeah,
1: and that's US. and that's actually a very good example of what we would call cultural soft power, uh-huh. right? So there's there's something about the Irish culture, right? You know, that has been taken up. You know, has been has been repackaged in some way by the diaspora cultures, right? Because you know, it wasn't so awesome to live in Ireland for a long time, so you know, a lot of people had left for various reasons, right? Um, and
0: and you know, they now benefit from that to a certain extent, right? Because it's seen as cool. But well, well, what, what's very interesting is that if you talk about the, the end of the 19th century, I know we will we should, we'll be talking about you're working with Russia here. But, yeah, no, it's all good. But but the end of the 19th century, whenever uh, there was mass emigration from. Ireland over to the US. The, the Irish people were not welcomed at all. Yep, uh, they were. You know. Very low in the in the ranks of society, um, but just have managed to turn that around. Yeah. Uh,
1: through, I, I don't know
0: how, how that happened, but it, but it's just so interesting to see. If you go to America today, you're from Ireland. Oh, yeah, you're from Ireland. But you know, 150 years ago, you're from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And, and the and these sort of what what is seen as sort of interesting culturally, right, will change all the time. Right?
0: Yeah. Well, that's very interesting yeah. for, for today, particularly. We're seeing a lot of immigration from various countries and a lot of a lot of conservatism that that would be against against people coming into their country. You know, perhaps Perhaps just like the Irish example in another hundred fifty years. Attitudes to yeah to to might have changed yeah so.
1: and I, and I and I think this sort of gets back to sort of why it is that I that I want to study this uh, because I think part of the problem that we have is that we we we, we kind of take liberal democracy for granted sometimes uh, you know we, we take it for granted that uh, that we have reached the end of history so there's this there there was in the 1990s there was this famous article called the end of history uh, and you know one of one of the claims. Was that you know that that liberal democracy has has won, right? And and this will be you know we have a few things to probably sort out, but this will be the final resting place of, of how we of how we do politics, right? My apologies to Fukuyama for oversimplifying that. Um, you know, and the problem is is that when you when you read it as a political science student, right, you go, ah, oh, that's that's clearly not right but then implicitly buy into the idea because you don't conceive of how things could be different from what we have now. Right? And I think that's kind of why I'm interested in, in why it is this sort of this attraction to what I would say are more conservative values coming from Russia. Right? Because the liberal democracy that we have now doesn't have to keep going. right? There's nothing inherent about it. There's nothing natural about it. right? It's the product of a lot of political fighting over hundreds and hundreds of years. right? And, the, and you know, we have to do things to maintain it. If we if if we wanted if we wanted to continue going, Uh, so my 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 interest in Russian influence right again is exactly because this is one of those things that you know potentially threatens this this order that you know that I enjoy right you know that I hope a lot of other people enjoy Um, because if it comes to the point where a lot of other people don't enjoy it, then it might just go away.
0: It'll change into something.
1: It'll change into something else. Else, I mean, yeah. just, just like the Irish going from, uh, you know, from being, you know, scorned to being praised. I yeah. mean, it doesn't, there's nothing natural about that. There's <laughs> there's all kinds of reasons why that's yeah. the case, right? But neither of those things had to happen, yeah. right? It happened because certain people did certain things, and there were certain political decisions made, and there were certain
0: movements at certain times, yeah. right? And and this is what we get out of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it seems to be that some some of the tactics, as, as you alluded to there from the Russians, was is to just feed in fake news yeah. into into the, the feeds of the the West.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: as you say, it, it disrupts. It just makes you question everything. Yeah. Gets to the point where you really don't know what, what to believe anymore. I think we can see this in the conspiracy theories that are, that are led today, and it's not just Russians that are. That are uh, feeding the fake news into our timelines on yep. Facebook it's, it's also coming from the west it's, That's coming, right. it's really coming from yep. the guy that invented fake news yeah absolutely <laughs> so it's just a bombardment of lies yep so uh, is there any look into the consequences of, of uh, news going from news to, to lies I mean and, and how, how do how do we react to this it's yeah, I mean it's a, it's a very very
1: interesting subject it's uh, I mean the the funny thing about this is that if we think back to the origin of the term fake news, it was actually a term used by the left. For about five seconds before the right took it up, uh, okay, it, yeah, in in uh, the last in like yeah, exactly right. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, so so the so the term fake news
0: uh-huh. in my Donald re- Trump in, st- stole the stole yeah, yeah the no yeah. <laughs>
1: okay. in, in my recollection of it right and again you know I mean this is this is me thinking back. I remember it first being used by by left wing people to try to react to what they saw as propaganda, uh-huh. right? As as you know, influence from Russia and perhaps others. And then it was, of course, taken up by the right as uh, as as basically a, a way to delegitimize any news whatsoever, right? Uh, and it's uh, I mean that's yeah. yeah. I mean this is this is one of those things you always have to think about when you uh, when you put into practice some sort of uh, political uh, strategy, I guess is what you can say, right? Is that you know you always have to think about well, what if the other side does not yeah. What What are the consequences of uh, if, if this is if this is how we're going to you know proceed? Um, so, but it's a you know I mean that was in in reaction to this idea that exactly that states like Russia, other sources of, as well, were sort of bombarding us with all of this, all of these lies, right, in order to confuse us, in order for us to think. Oh maybe there's no difference between you know any of the candidates and it doesn't matter if I vote you know I can't understand the issues things seem so chaotic Right, um, and basically try to to undermine you know liberal democracy, which which runs a lot on you know an idea of that there you have facts, you have citizens that judge the facts, you have different interpretations of what you should do about them, right, and then you decide, right, the citizenry decides, right, an informed and decision, yeah, they make an informed decision, right, you know, and that that's you know, I mean, it's always been more messy than that, and that's fine, right, but the but the point about it is that. You You know, this undermines the very facts that we're talking about, right? You know, so part of the problem with a lot of political discourse in the United States and it's it's spread elsewhere is that people don't even agree on what is real, right? And that, of course, makes it a lot more difficult for, uh, you know, for democracies to function, Right to find some sort of consensus, because there's it's and maybe you can think about it. There's one step to saying we agree on the facts, but we have a different interpretation of what we should do. Right to we don't even agree on what's going on. Yeah. Right. So how can we possibly accept, you know, whatever that political that other political plan
0: is that just happened to win this time? So it, it is a very powerful tool. I, I can't comment on anybody else's opinion, but my opinion would be that uh, the Russians are perceived as not being, not to be trusted. You know. Well,
1: there are some who would say that. Again, yeah. again, the Russian regime. What's I would say. For? Yeah, yeah, ah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
0: <laughs> uh, but but then if you uh, what the, what their tactics of soft power seem to be doing is that spreading that mistrust yep. so it's not just the Russians you can't trust anymore you can't trust your own liberal western government you can't trust uh, the media yep. you can't trust scientists yes yes absolutely <laughs> you can't trust nothing absolutely so that's a very harmful thing to, to, to be spreading around
1: well yeah for liberal democracy it's very or harmful for liberal democracy I mean but, uh, for the uh, uh, interests of the Russian regime it might be
0: great well that's that's, uh, that's, <laughs> that's of course yeah. that's also very interesting yeah. <laughs> but know, I think from uh, my perspective it seems yes, to a very bad thing. Yeah, but yeah, no, absolutely. Perhaps there's other people out there that yeah. have a different opinion.
1: Yeah. And I think I think what's what's important about this and sort of getting back to nine, right, is that you know in a lot of soft power research, right, you know, again, this is about ideology and culture and how it ties into foreign policy and how that gives you attractiveness. Right? And one of the questions you might ask yourself is that, okay, so what ideology is attractive? Right? Yeah. And Nye goes,
0: yeah, you think,
1: okay, it's a little bit subjective, right? And Nye goes, well, it's those ideologies that, that, that are universal, right? And you might ask, okay, so what ideologies are universal, right? And Nye basically says, well, you know, it's complicated. You know, even within a state, there's, uh, you know, different opinions. But then when he actually has to give examples, he always comes back to one example, and that is... Liberal democracy, Uh right? Because that's his opinion. That because that's and that's and that's fine, right? That's his opinion. Liberal democracy for him is the most attractive thing, right? And what you see is that within a lot of writing about how soft power works, this is the assumption that is made all over the place, right? So if you ask, does China have soft power, right? What will happen in most articles? uh, They'll be like, well. You know, they're not a liberal democracy, so therefore they can't have ideological soft power because we all know, right, that liberal democracy is the most attractive thing. So therefore, I guess they might have culture, right? You know, and then you try to, and then you immediately go over to the culture element because you've automatically eliminated the idea that the ideology could ever be attractive. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens when we study Russia. Right, there's basically an assumption that you know this ideology could never be attractive, right? So you then talk about Tolstoy, right? Or you talk about the Russian Orthodox Church and how that you know that that has attractiveness for other Orthodox regions, right? Or for people who like Russian literature or, or whatever, right? Okay, and you so you limit what you think the potential for Russian influence is right and it also leads you to this idea that well if they can't be attractive then all they have is fake news and disinformation that's all that they can do right they can disrupt they can confuse right but because they don't have any soft power, because again, not liberal democracy, right? We've made that assumption. It means that you know you you don't pursue that idea any further. You leave it at misinformation and or disinformation and propaganda. And I think what you know some of the research we've been trying to do here in Odense at the Center for War Studies is is to really you know question that assumption, right? Is liberal democracy the thing that everybody wants? Mm-hmm. Because if it's not, then all of a sudden we have a far complicated idea of what this influence might be. Because it's not just propaganda and disinformation. It also might mean that there's actually receptive audiences in the West who actually like the ideas of conservatism that the Russians are putting out. And that's something that people don't talk about as much. Just before we get to
0: to the answer to that, are are you looking into non-Western countries? to 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 ask them what, what their... Actual preferred ideology is
1: no. So, so right now, I mean, so this is this is a work in progress. Okay. So right now, what we've done is we've 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 published an article to kind of establish the idea, right? And we've looked towards a kind of, I guess you'd call them populist elites in the West. Again, you can't do everything. It's not that the non-Western stuff isn't interesting. It's just, you know, there's only so much you can do in one article, right? So we we started with the idea of populist elites in the West, because before that a lot of it was only on about the was only about the countries close to Russia right that's where you find russian speakers it's where you find orthodox church members right so again if you think that the culture is the only thing they have attractive that's where you look right so what we said is well if you relax the assumption that only liberal democracy is attractive and think the conservative values espoused by the russian regime can also be attractive then what's going on in the rest of the West, right? And of course, what we found is that there seems to be open praise amongst many, many populist leaders towards a series of what we would call conservative values. Christianity, a very conservative form of Christianity, right? And how Christianity is the natural, uh, you know, the natural cultural religion of Europe, and of course, how it's being, you know, from the far right, how it's being interfered with by immigration of non Christian people. Uh, you also find it in ideas of strong leadership, mm-hmm. right? You know, so strong, sort of almost quasi authoritarian leadership as being a good thing. Okay. So, so
0: your first point there, they, yeah. they would admire Russia in the sense that
1: there's one religion here, as in as in they promote themselves now. Uh-huh. Okay, in the last sort of I don't know ten years, let's say, right? You know, they've been promoting themselves as a defender of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Okay, now it doesn't matter. Now, don't. It's complicated actually as to what's happening in Russia, right? Um, but you know, the Russian regime has definitely put out this message, and we find that certain evangelical groups in the United States, for instance, right. You know, then sort of speak somewhat positively of Russia. Uh, you know, after this, we find that people like uh, Marine Le Pen in the in France, right, openly defend this idea that you know Russia is putting forward the traditional European Christian values, which are the values that we should also follow. Right? Yeah. Right. So, so that idea of sort of a particular conservative brand of Christianity is is, is part of the the message that Russia is putting out, right? And like. I said strong leadership you know might be another one that uh, that you might look at right putin as figurehead as the guy who gets things done right and uh, and it was interesting when you we were going through the research because you know you have all of these americans right so particularly members of the republican party right who always bring up putin okay so and what they like to do is they they'll, they'll say back when Obama was president, right? They would say things like, you know, Obama he's so weak and spineless, right? You know, he's not a real leader like Putin. You okay? never saw him
0: ride uh, with the top off on a horse. He, you
1: never saw him ride with the top off on the horse, right? <laughs> yeah. And that and that and that's the crucial difference, right? Yeah. You know. But uh, but this is the, this is how this is how they they spoke about things and the, and you know Republicans are going to hate uh, uh, Obama, right? You know that's just you know I mean it's their ideological opposition, right? They they want power, they don't want Obama to have power, but they can choose anybody to compare him to, right? Uh-huh. And what was interesting is that they came back to Putin as a point of comparison, right? So like Rudolf Giuliani, right? For instance, you know is you know. He can compare Obama to anybody, but it's Putin that he reaches to when he has to think of an example of what he wants, right, of what is good, you know? And so this idea of this authoritarian, you know, strong male figure, right, you know, plays, you know, within a certain type of conservative ideological audience.
0: I remember seeing seeing clips of Donald Trump himself. Yeah. Commenting on how, how great a great a leader Putin is. Yeah, absolutely. Which yeah. which is something I don't think you would have got in uh, in the previous. Six decades at least. It, it, would, uh, be, it would be. more rare. The, the U.S. and the uh, yeah and Russia, yeah, and the USSR. And, and and this is this is this is the
1: interesting thing, right? Because uh, you know, again and again, right? We it was it was like hiding in plain sight, right? Once we once we accepted the idea that the conservative values might be attractive, right? We all of a sudden found all of these open statements of admiration for the Russian regime and Putin based on conservative values from all of these populist uh, you know, actors all across the West in both Europe and the United States, right? And, and, and that, was, you know, that was our signal to say that what is going on when we understand Russian influence isn't just about confusion and lies, right? It's also to some extent about ideological attraction, Right, and that's that. That might be one of the missing pieces when we think about, well, what do we do about it? Right, because if you think about, if you think that what the problem is is bad information, right? So if you think it's about propaganda, then really what the problem is is that you have pieces of information that are flowing into the West that are bad, right? They're lies. They're meant to confuse. So what do you do about that, right? So one of the things you do, and what a lot of countries and sort of organizations have done, is that they open up disinformation websites, right? You know, find the truth at the NATO disinformation website, right? Um, you know, because their model is, we need to show what the correct information is, and once people see what the correct information is, then of course we, we, we can mitigate the problems coming from this other influence, Right? So, but if you think that part of the messaging that's coming out of Russia isn't just about lying, but about conveying an ideological position that's actually attractive to people, then it doesn't actually matter that you're giving them what you think is the true information, right? You know, that solves part of the problem, perhaps, right? But it doesn't solve the other problem, that people actually look at this information coming from the Russian regime and say I wish it were more like that,
0: that that's, that's very interesting indeed yeah and uh, yeah how, how far will it go are you able to see how far back this admiration for Russian conserv- conservative sort yep. Started in the US
1: yeah well, I mean, it's, it's a good question, because so after after the fall of communism, right, mm. so uh, you know, in, 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 the, in the 90s, right, I mean, Russia went through this period where they really didn't have any ideology, right? I mean, they definitely weren't communist anymore. We knew that they were trying capitalism and they were trying democracy, but it wasn't like there was a Russian version of it that they were trying to push, right, or like espouse. You know, and And so there was this idea that there was an ideological emptiness, right? I mean, they were functioning, right? And they were trying to kind of be like the West. Um, But but there wasn't any sort of novel message. I mean, particularly not like there was under communism, right? Where they had a very specific ideological message, right? So it's really not until the early, you know, the early teens... Right, that things start changing. Right, I mean, there's a some. I don't. I don't know the insider politics of it, of course. Right, but I'll, at some point, some decision is made that what we're going to do is almost rebrand Russia as the conservative pole in the European concert of powers. Right, um, and. Uh, and that's where you start getting, you know, this, this, these ideas of associating the Russian regime and Russian culture as this, you know, conservative, Christian, strong leadership. Right? These ideas start playing and getting put out, put out, right? And they've probably been pretty successful. I mean, it's it's better than definitely better than what they had, right? Um, and in this way, because not only do they get to have the effects of the propaganda and disinformation, right? I mean, I should say, I mean, those are real as well, right? I mean, this isn't either or, this is an and argument, right? Um, You know, so they get to have the confusing properties of that and they've also probably found that we can have certain types of influence among Western populations who have, for different reasons, turned away from the idea of liberal democracy, right? I mean, whatever their dissatisfaction is, be it that it's a threat to their Christian values, or be it because you know they're suffering economic hardship and they and they don't see politics as working. I mean, there could be a whole variety of reasons, right? But we can portray an alternative message, which might help us out. Okay.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, I'm, I'm remembering something I heard fascinating story in a, in a podcast last week, Blind Boy Podcast. Uh, now, I don't know whether this is true. <laughs> I'll sort of say that from the outset. Out yep. But after the Second World War, there were some tensions between USA and Russia. and uh, they, In Russia, they had like four rules for what is art. It was state-sanctioned state art, and it had to be realistic, like beautiful landscapes or portraits or things like that. And it had to be pro-party. So they they use that as a tool to say to the West or say to America specifically, we have rich culture, we have beautiful art. You're just a hundred years old or whatever, a couple of hundred years old. You have no culture, you have no history. So then this theory again, don't I haven't seen any evidence to back it up, is that. There was a lot of immigrants from Europe to, to the USA, Pollock being an, as an example. Who invented modern art? You know, splashes of paint on a canvas. Yep. And it's the most highly prized art, like two hundred million dollars for one of his one of his works. Yep. But the the CIA. Yeah,
1: supported it all. As is I, this true? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, as far as I understand, it's true. So, so, yeah. so the CIA yeah.
0: said, okay, this is new art. This is individual art. Yep. We're going to use this and bring it on tour around the world to show Russia, in particular, that come to America. Be free, be liberal and create New York.
1: Yeah do all kinds of interesting things I mean and this this is part of the sort of you know even then prior to the concept of the word soft power right so that, that, that's, it, that's, true. That, that's 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 <laughs> yeah as far as I understand that that's definitely wow. true the CIA supported a lot of art movements uh, exactly to show Europeans in particular right yeah. that America was you know a place of artistic innovation and had and had a culture and, and was doing interesting things the, the, yeah. the other
0: one I heard the other one I heard in and around the lady is that they they funded a lot of concerts gigs in West Berlin, and this is a very hot one. There's no evidence for this now at all. that <laughs> The CIA wrote the song "Dust in the Wind." Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, <laughs> and you know, but, but, I, I've but, never
1: asked myself but, what type of song <laughs> would the CIA write. But
0: but uh, but but that's fascinating. That that from after the war to it will. Just the, the, the thought that the West was trying to use art and culture, movies and films. Uh, if you actually do think about Rocky Rocky Four, yeah, you know the, the Russia versus uh, versus uh, the, the USA and the many other movies from from the eighties, Top Gun, <laughs> that are all about this, and feeding them across across uh, the the Iron Curtain, yeah. uh, just to try to change the minds of the people in there. Yeah. I actually saw. Uh, fascinating programme about uh, Romania, Romania yep. and about how they were they were smuggling in uh, contraband in the form of movies. Yeah. And the the programme that I watched alluded to that, that these movies were so important and every everybody was watching these western movies with a different kind of car with <laughs> with, with, with all of these products that just weren't available and the people who wanted this. Yes. You know so so the want for change was was very much there. You had some people that liked it, the way it was, everybody's guaranteed a job, everybody's guaranteed their basic needs, but there was a growing demand for we want flashy cars, we want rock and roll, you yeah. know. Um so, so, yeah. so this, this soft and power idea must go, must go uh, way back.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it's obviously it existed way before Joseph Nye gave it the term, <laughs> right? You <laughs> yeah. know, I mean, named it uh-huh. as soft power, right? I mean, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing in the, in the sense that, yeah, I mean, they, you, the, the West, like everybody else, right, tries to brand itself, tries to put forward images, right, that will have others view it positively, right? Um, and I think that that's the important thing about sort of the argument that I'm making and why it's important to frame it, that you don't fall into this kind of relativistic hole of, well, everybody's doing it, so why does it matter, Right. Because you could you could say this, and I and I've I've heard it when I've taught this in the classroom, right, from the students, and that's fine. Because I mean that's that's the next step. So if the Russians are doing it, but we know the Americans doing it, so what? What's special, right? Um, and the thing is, is that what's special for me is exactly that, you know, as a liberal Democrat, right? It's it's the it's the anti-liberal message coming out of Russia that I'm that I'm primarily concerned about that makes it for me qualitatively different. And I think I think the other important thing about this is that this isn't a national message. So we think I think a little bit too much in terms of nationalities here. Um, because if Russian if, if the Russian regime were a liberal democratic regime, then of course I would be probably more okay with what was coming out of it, right? So it's not Russia the Russians per se mm-hmm. right it just happens to be the particular ideology that the Russian regime is putting forward right now mm-hmm. you know it would be the same if the Americans decided to to you know to go all in on Donald Trump and elect him king for life and you know, yeah. uh, well, you know that's, that's and, and, and completely turn things around. Just, I mean, just, I, would, I would probably just, then go, well, I have problems with what they're putting out as well, right? Yeah, just you to know? deal with that yeah.
0: thought, I think we need another beer. Yeah, Can absolutely. Get another beer? We'll you could uh, definitely give me another beer. Back Thank in two you. seconds. Well, I'm off getting a beer for visit myself. Let me kindly ask you to contribute to the beer fund of this podcast. If you like what you hear, if you want Science & Beers to continue in this format, please consider making a donation. You can do that at paypal.me forward slash scienceandbeers. You can find the link on our website as well as links to all of the places where you can find our podcast, iTunes, Spotify and Acast. If you're not in a position to donate, please help us in other ways by telling people about the podcast, by sharing links to the podcast, and leaving us a review where possible. A nice review. That's unbelievable that, that, that that's actually true about the CIA if I'm in the art.
1: Yeah, but in a way kind of unsurprising. Yeah. Right? Because I mean one of the things is that it's, you know, is is a culture, cultural and ideological warfare, right? I mean, it's it's a, it's about trying to figure out like what system is best, uh, and and in a way. You know, you need to use all avenues that you have. Uh, So it's a, you know, I mean, the fact is is that there was a vibrant art scene in the United States, right? And you know, the Americans knew that the Soviets would make you know counter claims about their culture, Mm -hmm. and so the Americans, I mean, again, it's it's a fun story, right? But in a way, it it, you would expect them to do something, right? I mean, they have the resources to certainly do it. Uh, So so why not? Used CIA money to promote American art. Yeah, you know? I mean, you you think about it
0: because you see be, you better that, better, uh, better, bombs, eh? better better art than bombs, right?
1: Better better art than bombs, <laughs> right? And and that's the thing. I mean, it's a you expect the CIA because you see it as such a traditionally conservative organization, right? To to not really be into Pollock, right? You know, you wouldn't expect when Pollock was making his art that you know. A lot of CIA, CIA members, you know, if you think of your traditional stereotype, would be super into that, right? <laughs> um, but, you know, but they, underst- they probably understood the, the, the value of it to other audiences, right? And sort of projecting the United States as an innovative place to, to be, right? This is what liberal capitalism, liberal democracy gives you, right? All of these fundamental innovations in art and culture, Right. That's that's and that's why you should want it too. Right. It's, it's, that's it's so a... interesting
0: in that they're not doing it as a way to say come to the U.S. They're saying it adapt our adapt our philosophies. Yeah. That's that's a, that's a yeah striking no. thing to yeah comprehend.
1: And this is and this is kind of what we've. I mean, the funny thing about it is that if we were in the Cold War, right, the idea that the Russians. Would put forward an ideological position in their propaganda that might be attractive to us in the West would be blatantly obvious, right? It would be like, of course they are, right? Um, you know, they had a communist system that they wanted to sell, right? I think what's interesting about this is that we've kind of forgotten about it, right? That we've kind of just assumed that. You know, that there isn't anything salvageable about the Russian regime, that, that Putin is clearly a joke, right, that it's clearly corrupt. Who could ever want anything like that, right? And the answer is lots of people. I mean, not that, not, not that Putin being a joke and corrupt a bit, right, but, I mean, there are particular values that they sell themselves on, and those values are ones that, that you know, that certain Western audiences might find attractive. Yeah.
0: Cheers! Vincent. Cheers! Yeah. So. You actually give, so a, what, give what, a, a sorry before you start. Yeah. What are we drinking? That is Tootle, a Danish brewery, and it is House of Peel. Okay, excellent. I, I should add that we are not sponsored by them, but uh, <laughs>
1: just in case anyone's interested,
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> if they want to, like, yeah, if they want, if we want, if they want to, I'm sure
1: Michael would not uh, yeah, object.
0: No, uh, yes. uh, Tootle's a fantastic brewery. I think, uh, yeah. I think actually there was. Uh, it's an interesting story between Tudel and, and Yeah, two of the best beer producers in the world you know the, like the, the most delicious craft beer in the world mm-hmm. that's produced on a mass scale is coming from Tudel and Mikkeler
1: yep.
0: and they're actually two brothers okay. that had a bit of a falling out uh. a while ago and uh, uh, no, the, no, the, no. the best kind of uh, falling out a fraternal <laughs> rivalry yeah, yeah. um <laughs> Sorry, I'm gonna to have to fact check that. It could be evil twin. No, it's okay. Yeah. I mean, this is the problem. I mean, honestly, when
1: I do these podcasts, I mean, part of the problem is that and I tell this to my students I'm not a historian
0: yeah. <laughs>
1: right I don't I don't have a, 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 a brain for memorizing facts yeah. right you know I mean my, my, my thing is more sort of thinking about things and thinking about how pieces fit together um, so if anyone's listening to this podcast and said that isn't quite right <laughs> yes. I
0: apologize in advance <laughs> yes yes and perhaps the CIA, CIA did not write the song Wind of Change but... it's,
1: it's possible it's possible
0: although but but that's one
1: of the things you can you can accept it as a fun story,
0: right? Well, this, this is what science beers is about. You know, we're we're not looking for a it's, it's not a lecture that's mm-hmm. uh, hard facts. It's it's, it's a conversation about science topics, yeah, and, and with people who you're experts in, yeah, in it.
1: yeah. But I think I think what's important here is that you know I mean even though I've studied this for a while, right? I mean. Some of what I say might still be speculative, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't claim that I have the crystal ball that will tell me what will happen in the future. You know, I've studied it for a while, and I'm putting ideas out there,
0: well, and, and
1: hopefully some of them might, you know, trigger some other ideas. And that's well, well so, so that's, uh, from, uh, that's the process. I'm
0: coming from a biology background, yeah. And say a question would be the question that I was doing was how much uh, greenhouse gases are emitted from a beach under certain yep. conditions. Yep. You measure that, and you have an answer. Yep. It's, it's black and white. Yep. This is what it is under these conditions. You have these amount of greenhouse gases that are that are emitted. But I don't envy the the work of the social scientist who, who has to deal with with uh, with people. Yep, and not even just people, but entire nations. Yep. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, and, it's, and and how they interact yeah. with each other. That, that's a that's a very difficult thing to to address, and probably. Most certainly, impossible to have a black and white answer whenever you're dealing with, uh, with humans.
1: Yeah, there's the, there's a huge. I mean, there's two problems. There's a huge amount of uncertainty because, well, you can never know what other people are actually thinking.
0: You can give them right? a survey, but they might not be. Uh, uh, there, there might yeah. be influence to. Yep, yeah, they can say
1: things answer. right. They can behave in certain ways, mm-hmm. um, and then you have to infer, right? What does that mean, right? And that's and that's uh, you know that's. That is full of possible problems, right? Uh, but the other bigger problem is that being a social scientist, if you put no idea out there, right, it can actually change the thing you're studying. Right? Ah, yeah uh-huh. so there's there's no necessarily independence between the researcher and the phenomenon that you're studying
0: the question would be right? what what do you think about but the philosophies of uh, the current russian regime I haven't thought about that that actually yeah yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah you <laughs> know I, no
1: absolutely right For and, example. and and this and this is the thing right so it's uh, you know and and when you do social science right i mean these are the things that you you kind of struggle with always right and and that's and hopefully that comes with a little bit of humility right in the sense that you have to understand that, you know, you can believe something, but you understand that coming to that conclusion is 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 fraught with problems, right? And that all you can do is contribute to a larger conversation where people are saying all kinds of different things, right? And hopefully through that larger conversation, right, we... we Try to steer the big ship of of life, of society, of of global politics, right, in a direction that is okay. Right, I mean that's that's uh, that's part of it, right? So I think I think in sort of when when I when I speak of these things, right, you know, I, I see myself as not telling you what is right, mm-hmm. but throwing out some ideas that will hopefully contribute to a, a bigger conversation about what are we supposed to do about all this? What is it first, right? What is the nature of Russian influence? And if we know what it is, then 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 what what, what do we want to do? And is that proper? Is 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 that the right thing to do?
0: Well, it's it, it's very good that people such as yourself are looking into this because I might see something that's uh, Russian propaganda from Russia Today or whatever. It, it, it could just passively go by me, you know. Yeah. As many people are getting on with their lives in their own nation, you know. What are the, the bigger bigger things at play here globally? One thing that does concern me here is that there are people such as yourself that study this, that study how uh, how ideologies might uh, might evolve, or, or battle against each other. Uh, but as we just discussed, it's very difficult for, for one person to have a, their eyes on that, you know, and they're, they're, they'd be working on a handful of other people that are looking into this here and publishing reports. But then you have artificial intelligence. Okay. So you have uh, many people in the world or on the internet really. they're yes. on Google they're on Facebook they're on Instagram they're on Twitter uh, they're buying things they're liking things they're commenting on things they're sharing things and and the fact that they're doing this uh, has been picked up say by Cambridge Analytica to yep. identify those people who are who might be of an ideology mm-hmm, that is just on the fence of voting for Brexit yep and then they can go, com, com, they can bombard them with they can nudge, with, nudge them nudge them yes nudge them. and see the them see in, in America but and and this is going to be entirely speculative but with us giving data about ourselves into like on the internet with every button we press yep we're, we're, we're sharing some details about our personal yeah so it it's possible that an, an AI maybe not today, but perhaps very soon can know us better than we know ourselves,
1: mm-hmm.
0: can know our ideologies, can know which way we're going to swing in in the next election, uh, and, and could manipulate our thoughts, yep. as you say. So there's evidence to suggest that they, they did do that in, yep. in, in the Brexit election. Yep. Uh, I don't know if I have a point here. I'm just very worried. Yeah. Uh, so I'm sitting in front of an expert, but but a, a computer program can gather information for half the world and know them better than they do themselves. Yeah. I and okay. And somebody with that information could could do a lot of a lot of damage.
1: Uh, uh, absolutely. And 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 with the. Uh You know, first by saying that I don't study any of this, but it's fascinating, (laughs) right? Um, It's not the first time I've asked you a question. Yeah, no, 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 but I mean, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) I'm I'm willing to, you know, you know, this is this is informal. I'm willing to give it a go. Yeah. Um, You know, I mean, I guess there's two things here. I mean, there there is there is a certain amount of scariness about it, and I can understand why that's the case, because it allows a certain amount of fine control. uh, You know that we perhaps wish those with informational power i guess if i'm going to put it in a way didn't have right and it's and it's bad for democracy exactly because the distribution of informational power is very uneven right so those who have it will of course be able to use it in better ways than those who don't have it now the but there are limits to this right and there's limits to this exactly because people aren't completely knowable right? We have our trends, we have our patterns, right? But you never know, right? That time when you're, you're, you're biking home, and uh, you know, you almost get hit by a bus, but you survive. And then you think to yourself, for some reason, God must have intervened. And then you go off and become a monk. <laughs> Now, unlikely, right? But, but this is the thing, right? Unexpected events, unexpected interactions always happen within social settings, right? Um, which, is, which places pretty hard limits on even how much you can know and predict, right? Even with a lot of information gathering, right? Now, the extent to which you can know and predict, right, might actually be quite a lot, but it won't ever be perfect in that way, right? So the sort of uh, sort of science fiction idea that you know the all-knowing AI, right, that can predict everything that we're going to do, uh, I would think is unlikely, just because the system yeah. the system is way too complicated. But, but you but, know.
0: Could, but Could but, predict which way we're going to vote. But
1: could predict which way we're going to vote, sure, for, for a lot of people, right? But the, but the thing is, is that for a lot of people, you don't need AI to even do that, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point.
1: You know, um, you know but I mean, again, the, the, the difference is always at the margins, right? And when you have issues like Brexit, where, I mean, the margins became very important, of course, this then looks like a really massive deal, Right. Um, but, of course, it's going to be more of a massive deal for those issues that are more uh, controversial amongst the population, right? And it's unlikely to switch issue areas or voting behavior that is radical, right? So, I mean, for instance, what, what, what is what is the message or nudging technique that will get you... As I'm going to assume a liberal immigrant to vote for the Danish
0: People's Party. <laughs> that's, that's going to be a very big nudge. It's going, going to be, going to a, be a, no, big no, exactly. Big yeah. It's going to
1: be a very big nudge, uh-huh. right? You know. So this this idea that you know through knowledge you can have control, right? Yes, right. But of course, always within certain limits, mm-hmm. right? Um, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be concerned about it, right? But it's also important that. To understand that it's not you know it's like how much should we freak out about it right? you know and the answer I would say is a little bit right you know, yeah. But maybe not, you know, overstate the effect of the control, right? So like I said, in, in issues where it's controversial, where it's 45, 55, right, in terms of how the population breaks down over an issue, Brexit, for instance, right, it may have a profound effect because you don't have to move that many people. Um, on other issues, in the short term at least, right, it might not matter as much.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll talk to somebody about AI. So you should well, totally I'll, talk I'll, to I'll, somebody I'll about, about another, AI. They, they another, might another they may,
1: might say something completely different, and that's, you know, that's yeah. fine. I don't claim to be an expert. I'm
0: just thinking about yeah. what, the work that you're doing. If it, if, it, if it is possible to see based on the data that you input to your likes and shares on yep. social media, your political ideologies yep then you you, you might be able to, to use that as a tool to say okay if you just take everybody on Facebook for example yep which ideologies is coming up
1: yeah yeah absolutely right you know and and you can you can use that to target people uh-huh. right you know to figure out like what people are more going to be more susceptible to your message so in that way you can you can maximize at any given point the effect of the messaging by narrow casting it to those audiences. Um, and and of course maybe over time, right, push those boundaries further and further if you don't perceive any if you don't have any opposition, right? To whatever message you're trying to put forward. And I think that's part of the important thing, you know, getting back to sort of the Russian influence question is that recognizing that part of this is ideological means that just like under communism we need an ideological pushback right we need to think about this not just as you know people are being confused we need to think about that this is still a battle over what is the best political system why do we want the one we want right and in what way can we sell liberal democracy again that's the, that's the fundamental question
0: for me at least yeah. you had a, you gave a fantastic Science and Beers talk a couple of years ago and it was on a on a an idea you were just trying to figure out it, it yep absolutely the talk was called rights democracy and illiberalism in Europe yes and it, and if I can sum up a good hour discussion uh, there are in any uh, liberalist democracy yep there's the left and the right yep the left wants uh Liberalism for the individual, whereas the right wants the state to impose some restrictions. And the reason for this is because. the the right might see the choices of the left as imposing on their rights as individuals to not live in a society like that or to not support something that they're ideologically opposed to. And then the left might see that opposition as an imposition on their individual rights for freedom. And about how this kind of interplay... It's just never going to be resolved. There's yeah. just no.
1: <laughs> yeah, there's no. Well, I mean, there's no resolution to yeah. to political debates, right? It continues going on. Yeah, right? I think. Um, yeah, I mean, in, in the talk that I gave, I think I <clears throat> I focused on in on one problem, which is the problem of what what is harm. Yeah. right and uh, and, and uh, physical and the, harm or emotional harm just yeah exactly no but this but what it what what constitutes what you know what is harm right under the sort of classical and very you know very basic liberal idea that you know we should all live according to what our personal preferences are so long as those preferences don't harm others right and I think I said at the time you know the first part everybody can get behind right you know we of course everybody wants to live under their own personal preferences Right, it's the second part that creates a lot of the political debate, because it's a, because you have to ask, okay, so what exactly is it that harms others in your in your pursuit of, of doing what it is that you want? What is it that harms others that therefore should be forbidden because it should be seen as illiberal? Right, and and you know, there's 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 a political debate over exactly what what constitutes harm. Uh, You know, some people have a very narrow definition of it, right? I mean, some people might even argue, if it's not physical harm, it doesn't count. Yeah. Right? I mean, you could make that argument, right? You know, if it's not literal physical harm, so long as I don't beat you up for expressing your political opinion, right, then we've satisfied, you know, one of the basic ideas within liberalism, right? And of course, one of the one of the, the debates that we have is, well, is the idea of harm broader than that, right? And to what extent? Does the harm, as we've defined it, right, become severe enough that we should really think about limiting certain types of other behavior, right? So if you think about emotional harm, if you think about harms to people's identity, um, you know, there's all kinds of ways that you can define, you know, what is harmful. And then the question is, is not only is it harmful, right, but does it meet a threshold that we can go back and say... This should not be allowed because it's too harmful. That it, that even though it's your liberal choice to believe or think or to say whatever it is, right? We should prohibit this because of the harm that it causes others, right? So even within liberalism, right? I mean, there's 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 a pile of debate over exactly well, you know what does it mean right what are what are what are are the limits of the basic elements of the of the doctrine and therefore what does this mean about how we should exist as a society right what what rules should we impose and what freedom should we grant right and this is all part of normal political discourse right i mean there's there's no end to this and i think you know you know, I mean, to a certain extent, I know that a lot of these issues make people really upset, right, when somebody comes up with a very radical, for them, right, a very radical idea of what harm might be, right? And for me, I'm always like, well, you know, I might not, I might not always agree with what that is, but you have to at least think about it, Right you have to think about it because this is what deliberative democracy is about someone's put forward a claim right and you think about it and you talk about you know what what that might mean right and then you decide whether you're going to go along with it or you know and i think i think part of the problem is is that you know we we become I mean and, and this is unavoidable right We become very attached to very ideas of how things should be right We have our ideas of what a harm is or what a harm isn't right And when we're confronted with another idea about that, right we, we become very defensive about it um, And part part of the thing about democracy is that we need to we need to remember that part of it is about the openness of debate. you know yeah. about exce- uh, and about accepting that things things you know, Sometimes, you know, you you need to make your best argument, and sometimes it's not going to work out right now. Yeah, and, and yeah. accepting
0: that that, that debate is, is never going to be resolved. And and, and, that, and that and it's
1: know. an irresolvable <clears throat> debate because it's too difficult. Yeah, right. But it's a debate that we need to keep having, right? Because the thing is, is that the alternative, and you can understand sort of why some of these messages from Russia are attractive, because they because the message I just gave about what liberal democracy is 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 completely uncertain right you know I mean you might believe something and then all of a sudden you're threatened in terms of what it is you believe right because there's this other ideas about you know what is acceptable and not acceptable you know with you know certain brands of conservatism you're given what is true and not true Right, and yeah. it get, and it comes back to a certain extent to the you know where we started, the conspiracy theories. You you are given, I mean, one way of thinking about this is thinking about the order that you get from believing in the conspiracy theory. Yeah. Right, you you, you don't I mean, have to worry. This is this is white. just how the world is, right? And it, and it's A, B, and C, right? And you don't really have to think about it, that there are billions of people in the world. All with their own subtle ideas, you know, about what it is that we should do and how we should live life. And then we have to somehow figure out how to negotiate all of it. Yeah. Like it's, an, it's an immensely complicated question.
0: It certainly is. It certainly is. And, uh, and uh, I thank you for giving me something to think about. Hopefully, for listening, something to think about as well. Thank you very much. Cheers. Yes, cheers. cheers Vincent. Yes. I, I, just, I just have I'm sorry but I just have one no more no question. continue that's all good how did yeah. you get into this how did you get into to, to, uh, studying English? into this subject in, into no your, your course to get into uh, social science and uh, and end oh okay so okay my, my message to anyone who's a lot
1: younger than me is that life is in- incredibly uncertain <laughs> which is not which is not what you want to hear right which is not what you want to hear but um because I can tell you what happened. So, I, uh, I uh, okay, and I tell this story just to show the number of changes, right? So, I, I started out uh, as a science student in university, and uh, I wanted to do, like, physics and math or something like this, right? And uh, I took a first-year course uh, called the Foundation Year Program, which was a, a, a course that basically made you read all of the great books, Right? And I thought I was doing this to kind of satisfy my art requirement. Like, you have to take a certain number of arts degrees as a science student in Canada, no matter what, right? So I thought, okay, I'm going to get it all over with, right? I'm just going to take this and I'm going to proceed on doing science, right? (laughs) And then I realized I really liked it. Yeah. Right? And so then what I did is I thought, okay, well, I need. I want to change to social science because this there's all kinds of interesting things I've never thought about right and I thought okay so what's it going to be and I was still a little bit practical at the time and I thought I'll do economics right that's that's you know I, it's, it's social science but I can see myself getting a job
0: right well that's an important thing to it, think about it's, it's, an, a, it's, it's, an, it's an important period, thing okay? yeah.
1: <laughs> and I apologize this story might be a little bit of a long walk but I think it's important to understand like this is literally how it I'm happened curious. right so I, uh, you know, I came out with my degree. I applied for many, many, many jobs, right? And the one that I eventually got was in Chicago, right? Uh, as an actuary, right? As, a person, actuary. as a, yeah, a person who works in an insurance company coming up with the amount, uh, the, the amount of money we would charge for insurance, right? So uh, I flew to Chicago because I thought that sounds interesting. I did a couple of years of that. And, uh, and I used to talk to this uh, older, uh, you know, older staff member who was my boss for some of the projects named Israel Krakowski. And, uh, and we used to talk about anything other than what we were supposed to because he had a PhD in philosophy from MIT, from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. right? And he graduated at a time where the jobs had dried up and he thought to himself, well, philosophy is not going to get me a job. But maybe the letters MIT will get me a job. And he went to an insurance company, said, I have a degree from MIT, a a doctorate in philosophy. And they gave him a job. So different times. That's the other thing to remember. And so he just told me at one time, he said, what are you doing here? Why don't you go back to graduate school? And at the time I had thought, I'd never thought about it because, uh, you know, I come from a poor province in Canada, right? One of the less economically advantageous. And there was an idea that you just get a job and and having a job is the most important thing you can do, right? So the idea of ever giving up that job and going back to school never dawned on me until literally one conversation where he put the idea in my head, right? So... I decide that's what I'm going to do. I quit my job, right? And then I, I, I move back to uh, to Nova Scotia for a little bit. And uh, I have a conversation uh, with someone I hadn't seen in years at a Christmas party who says, have you ever thought about applying in Britain? Did you know it's free to apply there? And I had never thought about applying to a master's degree in Britain. Right? Free
0: to apply? Do you mean there's no tuition fees?
1: As in it's free. So in, in North America, if you apply to a master's program, you have to pay. You pay to apply. You have to pay to apply. Wow. Exactly, right? So so this idea In that... In
0: Denmark, you get paid to go to university? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So it's, a, <laughs> it's a very different system. No, I mean, at, at the time, I can't remember, it was like 120 or 150 Canadian dollars to apply to a master's program. Wow. Yeah, not be accepted. You could be denied, right? I mean, that was just the administrative fee they would
0: charge. Mental.
1: Yeah, So, so this is what I did. I applied to the University of Edinburgh uh, I I had in the year been taking some courses, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I had taken some stuff on uh, ethnic conflict, and, and I saw this program in nationalism studies. And so oh, I nationalism
0: studies in Edinburgh. National
1: uh, studies in Edinburgh. Okay. I applied, uh, and they said yes. Uh, and I figured out that the Canadian student loan system would just cover the tuition fees, and I and I thought I'll figure out the rest when I get there. Uh-huh. And so off I was to Scotland. Nice one. Yeah. And then Edinburgh's so a beautiful city. Edinburgh's a beautiful city, right? And uh, and I happened to take, again, I had to take some electives. One of them was in international politics. I realized I really loved it. And I asked my professor, so if I wanted to do this, where would I go? He said, Aberystwyth. And I said, where? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I learned that Aberystwyth existed, uh, and uh, and then I applied, and they accepted me, and so off I was to Wales, in the middle of Wales with the sheep, uh, you know, studying international politics, uh-huh. and uh, and then uh, and then you know you graduate, you get a job. Uh, you know I had no idea where Odense was uh, neither did I neither did I no but, but, <laughs> they, but they, they it's in Denmark by the way it's in Denmark yeah if you, you want to know <laughs> birthplace of uh, Hans Christian Andersen very important to the Odense yeah. people who live here but yeah so and, and then they just uh, they just said yes I could have been anywhere else but here I am.
0: That, that's, uh, that's a, a wonderful journey right there. So
1: so and, and I understand and I apologize cuz I, I understand it's a little bit of a walk, right? No, but, no, no, but, but but I think but... I think it's important because the the element of chance. Right? Yeah. You know, if I if if I hadn't had uh, Izzy as a supervisor in Chicago. If I hadn't have met that friend at a Christmas party, right? If I hadn't have taken international politics as an elective. Right? It would have been, who knows? There's a lot of
0: chance in there, but there's also the element of making your own chances. Absolutely. So, so you, you set off with the yeah. with the, the, the goal coming from where you, where you're from. Get yeah. The job. You set out to get the job. You got the job, and then and then you were advised. To, yep, to, exactly. To, to, do, to do something else, and yep. you, you took all those chances. So it's a big thing to go from Chicago to Edinburgh. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and it's, it, they're different. <laughs> and then from Edinburgh to to, to the remote yeah. uh, town yeah. of uh, Aber Aberystwyth in, in Wales. In Wales, yeah, absolutely. The so, uh, the
1: the first international. National politics uh, department in the world.
0: There you go. Who Fun fact: a, Who would have <laughs> Yeah, exactly. They never let you li-
1: like Hans Christian Andersen in Odense uh, in Aberystwyth they never let you forget that this is the,
0: <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, how it is. Well, well that's a, a fascinating journey so far, and uh, I wish it the fascination continues. Yes, Vincent, I'm going to try. Very much for uh, joining me in Science Beer's podcast. Great. Cheers. Thank you.